0: Well, good morning, Grace Covenant Church. It is great to see you today. Uh, this is a very special day for us. This is the first time, maybe in two and a half months, where the band and the teaching time uh, is together. We've been we've been working separately. Uh, the band on Wednesday night, uh, teaching on Thursday morning. Here we are, Wednesday night, uh, together. And and by the way, if something happens between today and Sunday, it, and, and I don't talk about it, there's a reason why. Because I. I can't see in the future, so there's that. But here's, here's why we're doing what we're doing tonight, because we are trying to do the very best we can to broadcast on Sunday morning uh, the, the, the worship service together, and we're practicing that now on Wednesday nights. And and we're doing that so that the Internet looks great, and then we're doing that so that we can meet together with as many people as we can, as soon as we can, and as safely as we can, and that's happening as well. So we're running that parallel track, and we're looking at a passage today that I'm pretty excited about. I'm glad you guys joined us because we're going to celebrate communion together and we're going to look at one of the three passages in the Older Testament that, that rise above all the others. Like most of the Bible is used to describe the one of these three passages and we're going to look at one of those today. It, it is a passage in the Old Testament that will be carried over into the first words of the New Testament and to the last words of the New Testament. So. lot of things to do today. But first, we desperately need to pray for our country. So if you would join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll get on with our learning as well. O Sovereign God, our hearts are grieving, and we are shocked by the suffering and the injustice that is before us, and we can only imagine what you must experience. We see the evil one, is, it seems to be unchained. And if, if our hearts grieves for justice, how much more yours? Everywhere, it seems like on every level, there is injustice taking place. And in some areas, way more than others. And Lord, we we ask that you would sovereignly intervene and stop these things. Help us know what we can do to stop these things. You love life. And death is happening everywhere. Violence against other men and women. All of them in your image. You love industry and creativity. And what has taken some families three generations to build burns in minutes. That must grieve you. It grieves us. You love truth, and we cannot find truth-tellers. Industries that have been delegated the job to tell the people the truth, celebrate their lies. We have lost our way. Lord, this country, make our justice department just. Just. Let, let there be no man or woman above the law, not in a small town or an oval office. Give men and women the courage and the honor to show us that justice is blind. It is blind to color. It is blind to power. It is blind to politics. Lord, would you make it, would you help us do our what we need to do so we can make it so that authorities can know about people in the justice, you know, industry, <laughs> the people that are supposed to be keeping us safe and keeping justice prevailing, that those people that are bad, could you make it, could you help us make it easier to report those bad police and, and men and women in that industry? That, that, that authorities, would, when they hear about a bad person in, involved in these things, that they would have the, the power and the courage to take action and deal with that. And if they won't, Lord, would you help us find people that would take those places of authority and, and, and let justice reign in those places where justice is supposed to be, worked itself out in our communities. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us listen so that we might understand, so that we might know what to do. Let the church Let your church be an example of what it looks like to respect and enjoy the different ethnics and racial groups. Let us celebrate your creativity. Let us be the group that defends those who are not treated fairly. Let the church not be a church with Democrats or Republicans. Let us be a church united together, supporting people that are promoting truth and courage and justice. We are tired, Lord, and we are grieved, and we are angry, and we know you are too. Do not let this spirit of evil that is promoting lies and confusion to divide your church. O sovereign God, it is your kingdom come, your will be done, that we long for. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, today's passage that we look at, it actually has a lot to do with the circumstances around us. It has to do with the eternal kingdom of God. When we look at a passage today, we're reminded of the context of it, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that the purpose of man eternally, the reason we were designed, is to rule the garden as kings and queens, as a royal family. And in that ruling, it is a gift to God, and then we rest with him. And at the fall, Eden is lost, but the purpose of man is not lost. We are still to do these things. And what we've added to, the, to Eden, what, we've lo- what, what was lost, what we have added to that is chaos and violence and death. And look around. We never fail to fail. It's the easiest thing to do. And we are so broken and bent that God promises that he will fix it because only he can fix it. And, and so he makes this prob, prob, first promise to Adam, and it is, it's in the context of a covenant, and he says, I'm going to send a king, and that king will rule for eternity, and he'll bring justice, he'll bring peace, and he'll bring rest. He makes the promise again to Abraham, and when he promises Abraham, he said, one of your descendants will be uh, that eternal king, and your people will be too numerous to number, but they're going to be a nation, and then they're going to inherit some amazing land that I will promise them the promised land. But you will have a dynasty of kings, and that promise to Abraham, it's important to know it is a unilateral, unconditional, one way, no conditions attached, that promise has to happen. Later on in our storyline with the eternal kingdom storyline of God redeeming creation is, is the promise to Moses. Now, Moses' promise, his, his covenant is, is conditional and it's bilateral. There's two people involved in it and, they, and it's conditional upon. And, and the promise from God to Israel is this. Look, if, if you remember my, fa- my father-like love to you and obey me, you will be prosperous and you will be protected. I'm, I'm your father. You are a child to me. If you stay close... You're going to like life. If you're out on your own, you'll be out on your own. And that's the Mosaic promise. And, and, and it's the, the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament is a, is, is a display of that Mosaic promise. So what's happening is in the next book that comes along is, is Joshua. He, he's, Joshua decides that generation says, we will be strong and courageous and obey all the Lord has commanded. And that, that generation flourished. They stayed close. And the next, well, season is called Judges, and it's a 400-year teenage rebellion. And you wonder, where is God's plan now? And then, and then, a thousand years after the Abrahamic promise, a young teenage boy that happens to be a pizza delivery man. Think about it. Bread, cheese, cheese. There might be some tomato paste in there. We don't know. But anyway, this pizza delivery boy shows up. His name is David, and he he hears some giant bully defaming the name of the God of Israel. And (laughs) he leaves the pizza there and comes home with that Goliath's head. His name is David, and if you liked him as a teenager, you're going to love him as a king. Fast forward 30 years after he takes Goliath's head, and he is now the undisputed king of Israel. And David, in this kingship, in this responsibility, David is God's man to be king. He does what needs to be done so that God's kingdom will rule. And so he gets right after it. 2 Samuel, I'll just go through quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 5, he, the, 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 the kingdom needs a, a capital and he takes jerusalem and jerusalem to this day is still the capital of israel he takes that place and 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 puts a, a palace on on the hill there so they can look over and rule in that way he has a beautiful palace he has a capital city and then in second samuel chapter 6 he realizes you know what this this town needs the ark and the ark of the covenant is probably the single piece of 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 uh, what would you call it? A, a visual, a primary visual aid about the nature of God. Because it's not in the image of any created thing, it, 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 is, it, it represents his transcendent nature, that he is above and beyond anything we can imagine. And yet, he is local. He is eminent. He is with us. And that ark is carried with them wherever they go. That ark experiences what Israel experiences. And so David brings in the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And then with the, with the peace and the capital and a palace and the ark, he looks down and he says, I want to build God a temple. And here, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, is one of those three high points of all the Older Testament. Look what he says. This is what's on David's heart. He says, and after the king settled in his palace and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am, living in his house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. David is wondering, look, I want to make sure everybody knows that God rules Israel. That the battle belongs to Yahweh. I want to make sure everyone sees who's really the king of Israel. And the ark needs a temple for that. He's thinking, look, I have a home. God needs a home. I have a place of honor. God should have a place of honor. And that's what's motivating him. And so he tells Nathan that, and you're not going to believe it. But the the way God responds is unpredictable. Uh, he, he does two things that we wouldn't expect God to do, especially with this ambition in mind. The first is God says, "No, I don't want you to build a temple for me." Second Samuel seven four says, "But on the night, but that night, uh, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, that prophet, and he goes, go and tell you my servant David, this is what Yahweh says to him, that you are you uh, that you are the one, you are not the one to build the house of the temple to dwell in.'" I have, have I not dwelt in the house from the day that I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day? Haven't I been moving from place to place with a tent in my, as, as my dwelling? Wherever I have moved with all of Israel, did I not ever say to anyone, any of the rulers whom commanded, who, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have, I, have you not built a house of cedar for me? In other words, God is saying, look, I... I'm the God who's with you. <laughs> I'm the one that travels with you. I'm that God that has humbled himself to be with his people. And he's saying, I, I don't need a house of cedar. So that's one of the reasons God says no to, uh, to David. And another reason is found in the book of Chronicles. And that is that, that David is not suited for that job. That this place, Jerusalem, where this ark is, and then the temple that is that place where Like God's very own hand touches this little blue marble in the universe. This is the tangent point between heaven and earth. That special place, the temple, it cannot be built with a king with blood on its hands. It can't be built by a warrior king. It has to be built by a king of peace. Not Achilles, but Paris. Not David, but Solomon, David's son Solomon, will be king, and his name literally means peace. And so God says, you're not the one to do this because your bloody hands will soil that virgin linen that will be part of that temple. You, you can't do that. It's holy. God says, no, but thank you for asking, and I know your heart. And then the second thing God does that you can't imagine or predict is that God makes a covenant with David. God makes a covenant with David. And again, let me say the covenants in the Bible are the way to, to understand the will of God. And it is, it is, these are the formal promises of God, these covenants that He makes. And the reason we need to know those covenants, because the covenants are we what we look for when they're they're like a, a light in the time of of times of darkness. They are, they are the, the North Star when we're lost at sea. The covenants is what we go to like a lighthouse when there's a raging storm around us. If we watch the storm, we'll be at we'll at least seasick and we'll be worried. But we keep our eyes on that lighthouse that is built upon a rock that does not move. That's what the covenants do. And if you want to know the plans of God, you follow the line of the covenants. That's why we teach the Bible here. That's why we do surveys of the Bible like we're doing so that we see the plan of God being rolled out. This covenant with David, you need to know, it is unilateral and unconditional. Unilateral, only God's going to be doing the talking in this. He's the only one doing the promising and unconditional. David doesn't have to do anything to receive these promises. He doesn't have to perform, he just receives it. Now the important part when we listen to this covenant that God's making with David, we need to realize that it is like the Adamic covenant, it is like the Abrahamic covenant. But most importantly for us, we need to realize this is the salvation covenant, this unilateral, unconditional promise from God. This helps us. This is a template that we follow when we receive Christ by by faith. This is what we receive, a unilateral, unconditional, unrelenting promise from God. And this promise, here's what's going to happen. God's going to swear to himself. He's going to swear by his own name because there's no other name higher than that. And he's going to say, I am going to graciously and unconditionally promise you these things and nothing can stop them from happening. He will say, death can't happen. Death can't keep it from happening. Sin can't stop these promises from being fulfilled. Even time itself cannot thwart my ambitions for these promises to you, David, and its application in the eternal kingdom. And the first thing he's going to promise is that David has been made great and will be made greater amongst all men. Here it is, verse 9 of chapter 7. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies before you, and now I want to make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And then he says, death won't stop this from happening. Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you are resting with your ancestors after you're dead, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you and your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build my house for my name's sake, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Sin, even. Even sin can't keep this from from happening. As He says in the next two verses, he says, that son of yours, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he does go wrong, I will punish him. But my love will never be taken from him ever, I promise, by my own name. And then finally, he says, that's the nature of an unconditional unilateral covenant. And then he finally says, look, it's, it's eternal. Time can't stop it. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Here's what's happened. David sees the ark from his palace, from his home. And he says, I have a home. God needs a home. And God, you know, I have a kingdom. God needs a kingdom. And, and, and he, David means literal. And God comes back and says, oh, I'm going to build you a home. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. David realizes in this promise that David is being enveloped into the eternal kingdom promise line that started with Adam and then to Abraham. David knows the significance of being in part of the eternal kingdom. What is the eternal kingdom? The eternal kingdom is the plot line from beginning to end. It is the story of the entire Bible. It answers the existential questions that honestly we are, that our souls that are longing for Eden, they're still crying out for the eternal kingdom. These questions of where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? The eternal kingdom is the answer to that. And when we look at how God is going to fix a broken world by intervening in it, That's what the eternal kingdom is all about. He promised Adam that because Adam broke these things and only God can fix it. He gave us more clarity in the promises that he made to Abraham. And now David is going, wait a minute, what? I'm I'm part of that line now? I'm going to be part of that eternal kingdom where one of my descendants will be that king, that one king? Look how David responds he is overwhelmed. Can't even stand up. And Nathan reported these things to David, all the words uh, of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat down before Yahweh. And then he said, he sat down. What else can he do? (laughs) It's unconditional. It's unilateral. He just sat down and took these things, took these promises, sat down and worshiped in the presence of Yahweh. And he says this, listen to his prayer. This is only part of his prayer. Who am I, O sovereign Yahweh? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough for your sight, O sovereign Yahweh, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And in this decree, O sovereign Yahweh, is is for a mere human. (laughs) What more can David say to you? For, for you know your servant, O Sovereign Yahweh, for the sake of your word and according to your promise, this promise, your covenant, okay, you have done great thing, a great thing, and made it known to your servant. Look how his prayer rolls out. He says in the whole prayer itself, eight times he'll say, O Sovereign Yahweh. Two times he's going to just change things up and say, God Almighty. David is using this title for a purpose. O sovereign Yahweh. What does that mean? It means that God has a plan, an eternal plan, an eternal kingdom, and he has the power to make the plan happen. And David is starting to realize that he has a plan. It's working out in front of David. And now David is like, I'm being part, made part of that plan. I'm in this lineage of Adam and Abraham and now me. And it's unconditional. It's unilateral. Nothing can stop it from happening. Nothing can stop these promises from becoming true. And so, like, in the story itself, you see, after David's death, there's 600 years where God is working through what's called a united kingdom period, and then there's a civil war, a divided kingdom period. Not a lot of good things are happening during that, that history, that part of history. And then God just goes silent. He, he's not communicating to Israel anymore in the through his prophets, God doesn't say anything for 400 years. And it, it, it appears that they're lost at sea, that there's, it's too cloudy to see the North Star. The lamp is flickering off. How can they find their way in, in darkness? Is, is the lighthouse even there? The waves are too high to even see it. That's the context of the first verse Of the biography written to Jews, Matthew. After a thousand years of what seems like there is no plan or he doesn't have the power, Matthew breaks into this chaos and violence and says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That sentence is loaded this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's linking these unconditional unilateral covenants together and saying, this is Jesus. And the Jews are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a plan still? And he has the power to pull off the plan? Wait a minute. He was quiet, but he was working. He was moving pawns around his little checkerboard there, right? He's just moving pawns around like, like, Empires, like the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, using them like pawns on a chessboard. Oh, sovereign God. Oh, sovereign Yahweh. No wonder David prays that way. What difference does that make? If we could understand David's way of thinking about God, the most important thing about you is how you think about God. What if you were to think, oh, sovereign God. Oh, sovereign Yahweh. If you were to say in your prayers eight times... (laughs) you would be convinced of it, I'll bet. And it would affect you. It would show yourself in at least one way that you would trust and not worry. That you would trust and not worry. When when you think that the promise of the coming Messiah, when you look at the promises of Jesus being fulfilled as a savior and it's to that exclusion, it's very individual and you have a lot to worry about because he came as a savior and he did that, that's good. And good for you to be part of his salvation experience. But, but that's not the promise. That's a very small part of the promise. The promise says he came to be a savior, but he also came to be a king. He came to be a king, a sovereign king that rules. And what does the sovereign king do when he rules? He brings, he brings justice and righteousness. He brings peace. And then he brings rest. That's what a sovereign king does. That's why they wanted a king to have sovereignty. And when Jesus is fulfilling those promises, he's fulfilling the promise to be a sovereign king. And, he, and he, listen, his resurrection proves that he's savior, absolutely, that he paid the price for sin and, and the payment was, was accepted. But it also proves all the promises about him being the king, that he is sovereign, that he, he, like he rules, and he brings justice, and he brings peace, and he brings rest. And so we're, we're supposed to trust that there's still a plan. And he has the power to make that plan happen. And, and we're not to worry. If we worry, severe worry, okay, significant worry, is an expression of God doesn't know what's happening down here or God can't do anything about it. We shouldn't worry. Even in times like this, we can be angry. Oh, yeah. We can grieve. Absolutely. Worry. No, no, but the king, because the king had made promises, and the promises are showing to be true. Not only just trust instead of worry, but we also need to obey instead of rebellion. If you look at the language and understand what a king is, there's a king, and he has these subjects, and the subjects do what they're told. <laughs> I, I've heard people say, oh, I've tried Christianity. You know, it didn't work. And I, I just I want to interrupt and say, the, the Christianity that you tried, did you try the one where you obeyed all that he commanded? <laughs> or did you try the one that where you didn't like what he said you didn't have to do? Because that's not Christianity. Christianity has a king. And the king rules as a sovereign the things that belong to him. And we belong to him. If you read the Bible, you'll find that there's five reasons to obey God. The number one reason, he's the king. And we obey the king. It has to do with authority. The last biography to the Jews, right, the gospel to the Jews is Matthew. We saw how it started. Here's the last paragraph to the Jews that were looking for this king. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus came to them, Matthew 28, and he came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Because he's a king. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So be courageous because I'll be with you. But teaching them, look, look at those words. These are king servant words. Teaching them to obey what? His commands. Which ones? All of them. <laughs> That's a king. I want you to obey my commands. I want you to obey all my commands. And we, that's what the church, that's the purpose of the church is to go into all nations. He's delegated that authority to us because that's the nature of the Garden of Eden that we would rule that garden in justice, right? And, and we're supposed to be going and teaching other people to obey all that God has commanded, to practice on earth what it is in heaven. And when we... When we do that, when the church plays its part in making sure justice and righteousness prevails, it's an expression of giving back to God what he delegated to us. Look at these passages that we find in the Older Testament about this. In Proverbs 21, it says, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. Yeah, let's do that, church. Micah 6.8, f- kind of a famous passage. He, God has shown us, O mortal man, What is good? Uh, What what does Yahweh require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's what we're to do. Practice this as co-regents, co-rulers on earth. Amos chapter 5 says, But let justice roll out like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream, everywhere, all the time, to every people. Proverbs 29, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked, they have no such concern. Oh, Yahweh God. Oh, sovereign Yahweh God. Oh, God Almighty. This is what we're to do. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. I mean, we're supposed to be bringing righteousness and justice to all mankind. Can you hear the cry for justice right now? To, you know, the cry from the poor and the oppressed and the unborn. They are crying out for the church to kind of step in and like teach the world (laughs) to obey all that God has commanded. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, when you look at those promises to David, you know, 3,000 years ago, and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, you think it's very easy to come to this. It's been so long. Is there still a plan? Is there still power? I mean, look at the chaos around us. It's been so long and look around. That is exactly what was stewing in the hearts of Mary and Joseph when an angel shows up and says, I'm here and I never left. Oh, sovereign Yahweh. So we're to trust and obey. Because what? He promised will happen, will happen. It's based on an unconditional, unilateral promise. It can't not happen. Just, just to, to be clear, like the, when we look at the book of Revelation to see how things end, the book of Revelation is prophecy for us, we're thinking ahead. It's a history book for God. He's looking back. This is how time works in, in God's economy. We're sitting at like a train crossing, and the train's coming by, and we're seeing cars one or two at a time. You know, sometimes we can back up and see four cars and see perspective on human history. That's not how God sees time. God sees the whole train. And in Revelation, he says, uh, uh, the last car the, is green. It's not a red caboose. It's a, green, it's a green car. And he goes, why, how do you know that? That's just foreknowledge. Okay, I, I saw it, I, I know it's green, that's foreknowledge. That's not what we're talking about. God's saying, no, 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 it's green, I saw it, I put it there. I put that green car at the end. I've already worked this thing out. What, is, what I promised to happen, it will happen. All of these things will be fulfilled. All of these promises will be granted. They can't not be granted. They will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And until then, we are to take on those roles. And when the king comes, and the book of Revelation is the story of justice being applied, accountability being instituted, there will be no, there will be no suffering. There will be no disadvantaged. There will be no birth defects. There will be no poverty. There will be no death. There will be no tears. There will be no tears of sorrow. I think there will be tears of joy. And we live this day like Mary lived and Joseph lived the day before an angel shows up, believing in these covenants, these unilateral promises in the name of God by God that serve as a lighthouse in storms, a north star when we're lost, a light in times of darkness, the last book of the Bible. In the last chapter of that book, it says this. Blessed are those who wash their robes and that they might be right for the tree of life. And they may go through the gates into that city, into that garden. And it says, I, Jesus, have sent an angel to give you this testimony to all the churches that I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm the morning star. That's how it ends. (laughs) Yahweh quoting this promise in 2 Samuel 7. Listen, if you have trusted Jesus Christ to, to pay the penalty for your sins, if you've trusted in the promises that he's made, that whether you can see them or not, that you believe that you were filled with shame and now have received honor by a grace just sitting down, that you are powerless and now you've received the Holy Spirit. That, that you were guilty and now have the innocence of Jesus Christ himself. Those are heavy promises made by a righteous king. If you believe those to be true, they're going to happen. They can't not happen. Those are the promises we live in, not just for a savior, but for a king. And we live for that day, especially in times like these. But we forget we get confused. We watch the waves instead of the lighthouse. <laughs> we, we lose the North Star. And we, we, we get slipped in the darkness. And Jesus says, no, 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 you have to remember the kind of promises I've made to you. And he gives us this as a gift. This is communion. It's the Lord's table. And this is a command from Jesus. He says to us, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> You've got to do this. As much as you can, you know, every time you eat this bread and drink this blood, do this so that you'll remember me and that I'm returning. So you've been warned that we're going to have communion today. Why don't you go and and pass out and distribute uh, those elements to your family or the people that you're uh, with today? Let's take communion together as a church. What a time to take it. We need to remember a couple things about communion. We need to remember this. it It is to remind us that the purpose of it is to remind us that the promises of God are true, and we don't necessarily have to see them to believe them. We can believe in the sun on a cloudy day. We can believe in the promises of God when there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for that. But time and death and even sin can't separate us from these promises. The other reason we need to practice this is because it's called communion, community. And there, I'm, t- I'm friends, there is evil amongst us that is trying to divide the church because the church unified, the church showing itself to be enjoying, you know, the creativity and, and, and the extravagance of God and the way he makes different kinds of people with different color skins and, and jawlines and, and features. God loves that sort of thing. That's what he does with flowers and other expressions of creativity. And the world hates to see us united. We have, we have this thing in common, the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's what we celebrate with communion, the unity that makes us his. So let's do that together. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, listen, this, this bread, it's my body and it's going to be broken for you. It'll be torn apart and gashed because what humans broke, only God could fix. And the Lord So God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, his only son, God and man, because only he could fix this and his body was broken. He said, take this and eat it. Do this in memory of me. Let's take that. Lord, we are so grateful for your sacrifice, your death that atoned for, paid for our sin. your your shame that brought us honor and and your humility that gave us power. Lord, we want to remember that in times like this, that your promises are true, that you are sovereign, oh, sovereign Yahweh, that you have a plan and you have a power to make the plan happen. Lord, let us focus on those promises and the nature and your nature. In Jesus' name, Then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood. But it's also the blood of a new covenant. There's the word again. Covenant, a marriage of love and law. Love is a generous feeling towards you. Law is saying, I promise I will always have this love and affection towards you. And he says, this is a new covenant, a covenant that will give you, by grace, my Holy Spirit, and it will live inside of you. My sacrifice will pay the sin, the price of your sins and make your soul worthy of, of holding audience with the Spirit of God. And when he comes into your soul, I will seal that door so he can't escape because, because he's safe there. God provides salvation and the power of the Spirit. He says, take this cup and remember this. Remember this that you're all my people, (laughs) you are all my family, that you're all in my image, you all share this blood, blood of the new covenant. Let's take that together. And then Jesus said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in memory of me until I come again in glory, like I promised I would. And he will. will. I know, it seems like a long time. And it seems like, I look around, it doesn't look like he's coming back. Yeah, that's happened before. Let's be ready for that coming. Let's live each day like we're righteous kings and queens, distributing justice and peace and rest to all those around us, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded I thought it would be appropriate if we, as a church, prayed the Lord's prayer together and closed our service time with that. Let's do that, okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from this evil one. For thine is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. My hope is that this was a spiritual moment for you and your loved ones. Can't wait to see you again, Grace. We're going to get back on campus as soon as we can, as often as we can. We'll see you again.